0: Hello listeners, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.
1: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
2: Godspeed, John Glenn.
0: Roger, Zero-G, and I feel fine. You my be out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light,
2: there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Thirty-two minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man.
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 381 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Mariner 8 and 9. Since it's been over eight years since I spoke about the Mariner program, I thought it might be helpful to review how we reached the Mariner 9 mission. The Mariner program was conducted by NASA to explore other planets. Between 1962 and late 1973, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory designed and built 10 robotic interplanetary probes named Mariner to explore the inner solar system visiting the planets Venus, Mars, and Mercury for the first time and returning to Venus and Mars for additional close observations. The program included a number of firsts, including the first planetary flyby, the first planetary orbiter, and the first gravity assist maneuver. Of the 10 vehicles in the Mariner series, seven were successful, forming the starting point for many subsequent NASA JPL space probe programs. The planned Mariner Jupiter-Saturn vehicles were adapted into the Voyager program, while the Viking program orbiters were enlarged versions of the Mariner 9 spacecraft. Later Mariner-based spacecraft include Galileo, and Magellan, while the second generation Mariner Mark II series evolved into the Cassini-Huygens probe. The total cost of the Mariner program was approximately $554 million.
2: Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Neil, we can see you coming. To many people, politically and in the public, the space race had already been won because Apollo 11 landed successfully on the moon. Yes, indeed. They've got the flag up now, and you can see the stars and stars. One small step for
1: man. Both the Soviet Union and the United States were also investing in a very robust robotic space exploration program, exploring other planets, Mars has just held this fascination because there's this idea of not only, you know, the possibility of life on that planet at another time, um, but perhaps future of human civilization um, could be moving to Mars.
0: The Mariner program began in 1960 with a series of JPL studies for small-scale spacecraft used for frequent exploration of the nearest planets, They were to take advantage of the soon-to-be-available Atlas launch vehicles, as well as the developing capability of JPL's Deep Space Instrumentation Facility, later named the Deep Space Network, a global network of ground stations designed to communicate with spacecraft in deep space. The name of the Mariner program was decided in May 1960 at the suggestion of Edgar M. Cortwright to have the planetary mission probes patterned after nautical terms to convey the impression of travel to great distances and remote islands. That decision was the basis for naming Mariner, Ranger, Surveyor, and the Viking probes. Each spacecraft was to carry solar panels that would be pointed toward the sun and a dish antenna that would be pointed at Earth. Each would also carry a host of scientific instruments. Some of the instruments, such as cameras, would need to be pointed at the target body it was studying. Other instruments were non-directional and studied phenomena such as magnetic fields and charged particles. JPL's engineers proposed to make the Mariner's three-axis stabilized, meaning that unlike other space probes, they would not spin. Interestingly, each of the Mariner projects was designed to have two spacecraft launched on separate rockets in case of difficulties with the newly untried launch vehicles. All Mariner spacecrafts were based on a hexagonal or octagonal bus which housed all of the electronics and to which all components were attached such as antenna cameras propulsion and power sources. Mariner 2 was based on the Ranger lunar probe. All of the mariners launched after Mariner 2 had four solar panels for power except for Mariner 10 which had two. Additionally all except Mariner 1, Mariner 2 and Mariner 5 had TV cameras. The first five mariners were launched on Atlas Agena rockets, while the last five used the Atlas Centaur. Now, a little more detail on the launch vehicles. The Atlas Agena was an expendable launch system derived from the SM-65 Atlas missile. It was a member of the Atlas family of rockets and was launched 109 times Between 1960 and 1978, it had a height of 118 feet, diameter of 10 feet, width of 16 feet, and a mass of 341,000 pounds. It was used to launch the first five mariners, uncrewed probes to the planets Venus and Mars, and the Ranger and Lunar Orbiter uncrewed probes to the moon. The upper stage was also used as an uncrewed orbital target vehicle for the Gemini crewed spacecraft to practice rendezvous and docking. However, the launch vehicle family was originally developed for the Air Force, and most of its launches were classified Department of Defense payloads. The Atlas Agena was a two and a half stage rocket with a a stage-and-a-half ATLAS missile as the first stage and an RM-81 Agena second stage. Initially, ATLAS-D missiles redesignated as the LV-3 were used as the first stage. These were later replaced by the standardized ATLAS SLV-3 and its derivatives, the SLV-3A and B. The final Atlas Agena launch was an Atlas E-F. The earliest Agena variant was the Agena A in 1959 through 1960, which did not have restart capability. Most of these were flown on Thor Agena boosters for the Discoverer program and only four used Atlas, two of which failed. Late in 1960, Lockheed introduced the uprated Agena B stage, which was restartable and had longer propellant tanks for more burn time. It first flew on the Thor and made its maiden voyage on Atlas in July of 1961. Atlas Agenas were then used for the Department of Defense and NASA programs, but proved a reliability nightmare as one failure after another happened. NASA finally convened a review board which undertook a wholesale reevaluation of the Atlas Agena as a launch vehicle. The board found that quality control and checkout procedures were poor and that this situation was exacerbated by the several dozen configurations of the booster as each individual Department of Defense and NASA program necessitated custom modifications to the Atlas and Agena. The board therefore recommended improved quality control, better hardware, and also establishing one standardized launch vehicle for all space programs. The end result was the Atlas SLV-3 and the Agena D, standardized versions of the Atlas D core and Agena B which would be the same on every launch. On later flights of the Mariner program, the Centaur was used as the second stage in place of the Agena. Centaur was the first rocket stage to utilize liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen as propellants. Despite high performance, liquid hydrogen had to be chilled at extremely low temperatures, lower than liquid oxygen and its low density meant that large fuel tanks were needed. Originally, Centaur was conceived of as a purely experimental project to develop an experience for larger, more powerful rocket stages so as not to distract Convair's focus on the all-important SM-65 Atlas missile program. But Convair developed a specially enhanced version of the Atlas-D vehicle for mating with Centaur stages. The Atlas was equipped with an uprated booster section, the MA5 which had twin turbo pumps on each booster engine and the structure reinforced for the larger upper stage along with elongated fuel tanks. The engines were manufactured by Pratt and Whitney. There were considerable difficulties integrating the two vehicles especially because the Atlas Centaur would be almost 30% longer than the Atlas ICBM and there were doubts as to its aerodynamic stability in flight. Eventually, with modifications and corrections, the Centaur was deemed reliable enough for the final Mariner missions. Now let's briefly review the previous missions of the Mariner program that led up to mariners 8 and 9 mariner 1 and 2 covered in detail way back on episode number 36 were two deep space probes making up nasa's mariner r project the primary goal of the project was to develop and launch two spacecraft sequentially to the near vicinity of venus receive communications from the spacecraft, and to perform radiometric temperature measurements of the planet. A secondary objective was to make interplanetary magnetic field and or particle measurements on the way to and in the vicinity of Venus. Mariner 1 was launched on July 22, 1962, but was destroyed approximately five minutes after liftoff by the Air Force Range Safety Officer when its malfunctioning Atlas-Agena rocket went off course.
1: Mariner 1 blasted off the launch pad on July 22, 1962. At first, all went according to plan as the Atlas rocket accelerated through Mach 1, 2, and 3. Then, the Atlas began fishtailing and veering off course. We're
2: not on trajectory. This is range safety. Stand by. At least good.
1: Mariner was only seconds away from separating from the errant rocket when the range safety officer had no choice but to give the destruct command. Destruct
2: command. Repeat, destruct command. This will apparently blew up.
1: Analysis showed that the cause of the rocket failure was a software error. A single misplaced symbol of code had resulted in the loss of the first U.S. spacecraft destined for another planet.
0: Weighing in at 446 pounds, Mariner 2 was launched on August 27, 1962, sending it on a a three-and-a-half-month flight to Venus. The mission was a success and Mariner 2 became the first spacecraft to have flown by another planet. On the way, it measured for the first time the solar wind, a constant stream of charged particles flowing outward from the sun. It also measured interplanetary dust, which turned out to be more scarce than predicted. In addition, Mariner 2 detected high-energy charged particles coming from the sun including several brief solar flares, as well as cosmic rays from outside the solar system. As it flew by Venus on December 14, 1962, Mariner 2 scanned the planet with infrared and microwave radiometers, revealing that Venus has cool clouds and an extremely hot surface. Since the bright, opaque clouds hide the planet's surface Mariner 2 was not outfitted with a camera. After a successful mission, Mariner 2 is now defunct and occupies a heliocentric orbit. Sister ships Mariner 3 and Mariner 4 covered in detail on episode 46 were Mars flyby missions. Mariner 3 was launched on November 5, 1964 But the shroud encasing the spacecraft atop its rocket failed to open properly, and Mariner 3 did not get to Mars. Moving on. Weighing in at 575 pounds, Mariner 4 launched on November 28, 1964. Mariner 4 was equipped with a camera and digital tape recorder capable of taking about 20 pictures. Other sensors were included to measure cosmic dust, solar plasma, trapped radiation, cosmic rays, magnetic fields, radio occultation, and celestial mechanics. Mariner 4 was the first successful flyby of the planet Mars and gave the first glimpse of Mars at close range. The spacecraft flew past Mars on July 14, 1965, collecting the first close-up photographs of another planet. The pictures, played back from a digital tape recorder over a long period of time, showed lunar-type impact craters. Some of them touched with frost in the chill of the Martian evening. Mariner 4 spacecraft was expected to survive sometime more than eight months after Mars' encounter, but it actually lasted about three years in solar orbit, continuing long-term studies of the solar wind environment and making coordinated measurements with Mariner 5, a sister ship launched to Venus. It is now in a derelict condition in heliocentric orbit. And speaking of Mariner 5, the 540-pound spacecraft was launched to Venus on June 14, 1967, and arrived in the vicinity of the planet in October 1967. It carried a complement of experiments to probe Venus's atmosphere with radio waves, scan its brightness in ultraviolet light, and sample the solar particles and magnetic field fluctuations above the planet. Mariner 5 is now defunct in a heliocentric orbit. Weighing in at 908 pounds, each Mariner 6 and 7 were identical teammates in a two-spacecraft mission to Mars. Mariner 6 was launched on February 24, 1969, followed by Mariner 7 on March 21, 1969. They flew over the equator and south hemisphere of Mars, They analyzed atmosphere and surface with remote sensors as well as recording and relaying hundreds of pictures. By chance, both flew over cratered regions and missed both the giant northern volcanoes and the equatorial Grand Canyon discovered later. Their approach pictures did, however, show the dark features long seen from Earth but no canals. Both Mariner 6 and Mariner 7 are now defunct and are in a heliocentric orbit. Which brings us to 1971 and Mariner 8 and 9. Mariner 8 and 9 were deemed the Mariner Mars 71 project. The plan was to insert both spacecraft into a Martian orbit and each would perform a separate but complementary mission. Either spacecraft could perform either of the two missions. The two spacecraft were planned to orbit the planet a minimum of 90 days during which time data would be gathered on the composition, density, pressure, and temperature of the atmosphere and the composition, temperature, and topography of the surface. Approximately 70% of the planetary surface was to be covered and temporal as well as spatial variations would be observed. Now I'm going to describe the physical characteristics of the Mariner 8 spacecraft. This would best be described by seeing a picture, which will be available on the website for this episode. The Mariner 8 spacecraft was built on an octagonal magnesium frame, 46 centimeters deep and 138 centimeters across a diagonal. Four solar panels, each 215 by 90 centimeters, extended out from the top of the frame. Each set of two solar panels spanned 6.9 meters from tip to tip. Also mounted on the top of the frame were two propulsion tanks, the maneuver engine, a 1.4 meter long low-gain antenna mast, and a parabolic high-gain antenna. A scan platform was mounted on the bottom of the frame on which were attached the mutually bore-sided science instruments which included wide and narrow-angle cameras, infrared radiometer, ultraviolet spectrometer, and infrared interferometer spectrometer. The overall height of the spacecraft was 2.3 meters. The launch mass was 998 kilograms, of which 439 kilograms were expendable. The science instrumentation had a mass of 63 kilograms. The electronics for communication and command and control were housed within this frame. Spacecraft power was provided by a total of 14,742 solar cells which made up the four solar panels with a total area of 7.7 square meters area. The solar panels could produce 800 watts at Earth but only 500 watts at Mars. Power was stored in a 20 amp hour nickel cadmium battery. Propulsion was provided by a gimbaled engine capable of 1,340 newton thrust and was capable of up to five restarts. The propellant was monomethylhydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide. Two sets of six attitude control nitrogen jets were mounted on the ends of the solar panels. Attitude information was provided by a sun sensor, a canopus star tracker, Gyroscopes, an inertial reference unit, and an accelerometer. Passive thermal control was achieved through the use of louvers on the eight sides of the frame and thermal blankets. Spacecraft control was through the central computer and sequencer, which had an onboard memory of 512 words. The command system was programmed with 86 direct commands, 4 quantitative commands, and 5 control commands. Data was stored on a digital reel-to-reel tape recorder. The 168-meter 8-track tape could store 180 million bits recorded at 132 kilobits per second. Playback could be done at 16, 8, 4, 2, and 1 kilobit per second using two tracks at a time. Telecommunication was via dual S-band 10-watt-slash-20-watt transmitters and a single receiver through the high-gain parabolic antenna, the medium-gain horn antenna, or the low-gain omnidirectional antenna. Mariner 8 was launched on an Atlas Centaur SLV-3C booster. The main Centaur engine was ignited 265 seconds after launch, but the upper stage began to oscillate in pitch and tumbled out of control. The Centaur stage shut down 365 seconds after launch due to starvation caused by the tumbling. The Centaur and spacecraft payload separated and re-entered the Earth's atmosphere approximately 1,500 kilometers downrange and fell into the Atlantic Ocean about 560 kilometers north of Puerto Rico.
2: Last night at Cape Kennedy, something went wrong with the launch of an unmanned Mariner spacecraft. It began tumbling about five minutes after liftoff, and it finally fell into the Atlantic. I remember the day that Mariner 8 was launched and uh, was terribly disappointed to hear that it did not make orbit. Every one of these uh, rocket launches is risky. The best way you can mitigate the risk is by launching two.
0: A guidance system failure was suspected as the culprit but JPL Navigation Chief Bill O'Neill dismissed the idea that the entire guidance system had failed. He argued that an autopilot malfunction had occurred since the event had happened at the exact moment when the system was supposed to activate. Investigation proceeded quickly and the problem was soon discovered to be the result of a malfunction in the pitch rate gyro amplifier. A diode intended to protect the system from transient voltages was thought to have been damaged during repairs or installation of the pitch amplifier's printed circuit board, something that would not have been detected through bench tests. As of 2021, Mariner 8 holds the distinction of the most recent U.S. planetary probe to be lost in a launch vehicle malfunction. The failure of Mariner 8 was a huge setback for the Mariner Mars 71 project. Under the original plan, Mariner 8 and 9 would fly a dual mission like Mariner's 6 and 7. However, with the loss of Mariner 8, NASA planners were forced to fall back on a simpler one-probe mission. To make matters more intense, the Soviet Union was still competing in the space race with the U.S. But this time, the goal was Mars.
2: The Russians have two unmanned spaceships heading for Mars. Mariner 9 is finally off on its 247 million mile flight to Mars, expecting to get there the 14th of November. So
1: the Soviet Union launched Mars 2 and 3 just right ahead of the American launch of Mariner 9, and there was an 11-day difference in, in those uh, missions.
2: The American ship Mariner 9, also unmanned, will arrive in the Martian sky about the same time as the Russian ships. Mars 2 and Mars 3, the Soviet missions, were even more ambitious because they carried landers as well. They The, the Russians intended to beat NASA and the Americans, not just to orbit, but to the surface as well.
1: It was um, It was an exciting sort of breakneck uh, competition, really sort of, really neck and neck.
0: At first, NASA still held out hope that another Mariner probe and Atlas Centaur could be readied before the 1971 Mars launch window closed. But a few logistical problems emerged, including the lack of an available Centaur payload shroud of the correct configuration for the Mariner probe. However, there was a shroud in NASA's inventory which could be modified. Convair also had an available Centaur stage on hand and could have an Atlas readied in time, but the idea was ultimately abandoned due to lack of funding. Therefore, Mariner 9 was mated to Atlas Centaur AC-23 on May 9, 1971, even as the investigation into Mariner 8's failure was still in progress. Since at the time it was not clear if the spacecraft itself had been responsible for the failure, radio frequency interference testing was conducted on Mariner 9 to ensure the probe was not releasing interference that could cause problems with the Centaur's electronics. All testing came back negative and on May 22, a tested and verified rate gyro package arrived from Convair and was installed in the Centaur. Mariner 8 and 9 were virtually identical and designed to continue the atmospheric studies begun by Mariner 6 and 7, and to map, hopefully, over 70% of the Martian surface from the lowest altitude, 1,500 kilometers, and with the highest resolution of any Mars probe to that date. Now, I just spoke about the instrumentation on Mariner 8, which was the same as Mariner 9, but I do have some additional information that I want to share for Mariner 9. Even though Mariner 9 carried an instrument payload similar to Mariner's 6 and 7, it required a larger propulsion system to control the spacecraft in Martian orbit. Therefore, it weighed more than Mariner's 6 and 7 combined. The ultraviolet spectrometer, was constructed by the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado, Boulder, Colorado. The ultraviolet spectrometer team was led by Professor Charles Barth. The Infrared Interferometer Spectrometer, also known as IRIS, that team was led by Dr. Rudolph A. Hanel from NASA Goddard Space Center, The IRIS instrument was built by good old Texas Instruments, Dallas, Texas. The infrared radiometer team was led by Professor Gerald Neubauer from the California Institute of Technology. The infrared radiometer was included to detect heat sources in search of evidence of volcanic activity It was to study temporal changes in the Martian atmosphere and surface as well. Mars' two moons were also to be analyzed. The visual imaging system would be used in a lower orbit, as I mentioned, half that of Mariner 6 and 7 flyby missions, and with a vastly improved imaging system, Mariner 9 could achieve a resolution of 98 meters per pixel, whereas previous Martian probes had achieved only 790 meters per pixel. To control for errors in reception of the grayscale image data sent by Mariner 9, which was caused by low signal-to-noise ratio, the data had to be encoded before transmission using a so-called forward error correcting code. Without the forward error correcting code, noise would have made up roughly a quarter of a received image. But the forward error correcting encoded the data in a redundant way which allowed for the reconstruction of most of the sent image data at reception. Now, Here's a little detail for the bit heads like me. Since the flown hardware was constrained with regard to weight, power consumption, storage and computing power, some considerations had to be put into choosing a forward error correcting code and it was decided to use a Hadamard code for Mariner 9. Each image pixel was represented as a 6-bit binary value, which had 64 possible grayscale levels. Because of the limitations of the transmitter, the maximum useful data length was only about 30 bits. Errors of up to 7 bits per each 32-bit word could be corrected using this scheme. The Efficient Decoding Algorithm was an important factor in the decision to use this code. The circuitry used was called the green machine, which employed the fast Fourier transform, increasing the decoding speed by a factor of three. So in the end, they got a less noisy image three times faster. Mariner 9 was launched toward Mars on May 3, 1971 from Launch Complex 36B at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, Florida, and reached the planet on November 14th of the same year, becoming the first spacecraft to orbit another planet, only narrowly beating the Soviet probes Mars 2 and 3, which both arrived at Mars only weeks later.
2: Mariner 9 approaches the most critical phase of its flight. A rocket engine on board will be fired to slow the craft down as it nears the planet. You know, that rocket's been cold for six to nine months. And now you got to start it up and it's got to work exactly right when you tell it to. That's when something could go wrong.
1: Fortunately, it didn't. Mariner 9 is in orbit around Mars, the first time that man has put a space vehicle into orbit around another planet.
0: When Mariner 9 arrived at Mars, planetary scientists were surprised to find the atmosphere was thick with a planet-wide covering of dust, the largest storm ever observed. The surface was totally obscured. Mariner 9's computer was thus reprogrammed from Earth to delay imaging of the surface for a couple of months until the dust settled. The main surface imaging did not get underway until mid-January 1972. However, surface obscured images did contribute to the collection of Mars science, including understanding of the existence of several huge high-altitude volcanoes of the Tarsus Bulge that gradually became visible as the dust storm abated. This unexpected situation made a strong case for the desirability of studying a planet from orbit rather than merely flying past. It also highlighted the importance of a flexible mission software package. The Soviet Union's Mars 2 and Mars 3 probes, which arrived during the same dust storm, were unable to adapt to the unexpected conditions which severely limited the amount of data they were able to collect. By February, the spacecraft had identified about 20 volcanoes, one of which was named Olympus Mons. Based on data from Mariner 9's spectrometers, it was determined that Olympus Mons, part of Nix Olympica, possibly formed by the eruption of hot magma from the planet's interior, was about 15 to 30 kilometers tall and had a base with a diameter of 600 kilometers, so it dwarfed all volcanoes on Earth. Carl Sagan was involved with Mariner 9, and I have a series of clips from him describing the orbiter's findings from the early 1970s.
2: And there's another and even more spectacular sign of geological activity on Mars is this enormous volcano, hundreds of miles across. It's the largest volcano in the solar system so far as we know. It's a young object because it doesn't have very many impact craters in it, meaning that geological activity on Mars has been occurring in very recent times.
0: Another major surface feature identified was Valles Marineris, a system of canyons east of the Tarsus region that is more than 4,000 kilometers long, 200 kilometers wide, and in some areas more than 7 kilometers deep. The canyon was named in honor of Mariner 9. Mariner 9 found visual evidence of wind and water erosion and deposition, weather fronts, fogs, and more. The exciting thing that uh, we
2: discovered, there were many of them, but one very exciting thing that that, uh, we observed in the middle of the mission was that things were changing before our very eyes on the Martian surface. For example, in 13 days, an area about uh, seven miles across discontinuously appeared, just hadn't been there before, suddenly it was there. Now that kind of change had been observed, but from the Earth and on a larger scale, for a hundred years. It was called seasonal changes, and the early observers imagined that uh, there was plant life on Mars, and that in local spring and summer the plants grew. They darkened the landscape and uh, heightened the, uh, the coloration of the landscape. Well, we proposed before Maron 9, my colleagues and I, that uh, instead what was happening was that uh, there were high winds that were uncovering, Uh, the dark material, dark, rocky stuff, by blowing off bright, fine particles. And uh, the changes that we've seen on Mars happen during the course of the mission are consistent with this this kind of idea. So it looks as if the uh, the seasonal changes of Mars are not due to biology, but uh, due to weather. We calculate that the winds are maybe as much as 200 miles an hour in such a storm. And uh, see so you have to have very high winds to make that thin Martian atmosphere pick up fine particles from the surface. So while most of the time it may be nice and calm, there are storms which, uh, which are much more violent than any we see on the Earth. Now, if you have very fast winds picking up all this fine-grained sand, that's a source of erosion and abrasion much more serious than uh, any windblown erosion we know about on the Earth. It breaks things up, makes things collapse. It also picks up things and denudes landscape of overlying sand and dust. It's an exceptionally dynamic environment, uh, in some respects like the Earth, in some respects quite different. It's its own planet.
0: Some images revealed riverbeds. Here is Mr. Sagan cautiously describing these early pictures he calls stream beds.
2: And here is something which no one guessed would exist on Mars at all. This is one of hundreds of little channels. This is actually not so little, this is a few hundred miles long. Channels which look for all the world as if they've been cut by running water. Here's a close-up of the inside of one of those channels and it has the characteristic patterns of terrestrial stream beds. But The trouble is, there isn't any liquid water on Mars. The pressure on Mars is so small that it can't keep a lid on liquid water. If this is due to running water on Mars, it must have been made at a time when the Martian climate was very different from what it is today, at a time when Mars had much more Earth-like conditions.
0: On February 11, 1972, NASA announced that Mariner 9 had achieved all its goals, although the spacecraft continued sending back useful data well into the summer. By the time of last contact, on October 27, 1972, when it exhausted the gaseous nitrogen for attitude control, the spacecraft had mapped 85% of the planet, returning 7,329 photos, including at least 80 photos of Phobos and Deimos. Previous flyby missions had returned less than 1,000 images, covering only a small portion of the planetary surface. The findings from the Mariner 9 mission underpinned the later Viking programs thus ended one of the great early robotic missions of the space age and undoubtedly one of the most influential mariner 9 remains a derelict satellite in mars orbit it is expected to remain in orbit until at least 2022 after which the spacecraft is projected to enter the martian atmosphere and either burn up or crash into the planet's surface. Salutation from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 381 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Mariner 8 and 9. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. The 2022 donors page is up to date. So, please go by the website spacerockethistory.com to make sure your name is there at the correct level with the correct longevity emoji. If there is a problem, please, please, please do not hesitate to let us know by emailing spacerockethistory at gmail Two quick reminders. If you need to contact me, please use the new email address spacerockethistory at gmail dot com. If you don't use it, your email will bounce. The old one has been out of service for several months now. And two, if you would like to donate by mail, which is great for me because I don't have any fees on top of it when you do that. When you write a check, I don't have to pay any extra fees that come out. But if you like to do that by mail, I am very supportive of that idea. <laughs> so, but my address, as you know, has changed. So please make sure you use my correct permanent address. So if you need that, and you probably do need that, go ahead and email me first at at spacerockethistorygmail.com. Make your check payable to Michael Annis. Do not make it payable to Space Rocket History because Space Rocket History is not a separate account. Just make it payable to me. Our next episode should appear by February 10th. And you know what? That is uh, Mrs. SRH's birthday. How about that? I just realized that. And in in, uh, one episode later, we will have a special celebration of nine years of the SRH podcast. That should occur on February 24th, episode 383, so don't miss that. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 204 are available on the Archive Podcast Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. Had just a few afterthoughts. I want to apologize if you heard strange noises or music playing during the podcast. We're still under construction here. Well, that was 90% of the Mariner program covered, with 8 and 9 covered in detail. Mariners 2 and 4 I had already covered in detail, but that was over 8 years ago, so it seemed like it was. I needed to uh, re read do the whole thing, because some of them I skipped, too. So we got the whole thing covered, except for Mariner 10, which hasn't occurred yet. If you would like to hear the episodes for 2 and 4, that would be uh, episode 36 and 46, and you can get that off of the Archive Podcast or on the homepage under the Archive tab at spacerockethistory.com. Well, Mariner 9 was a really impressive spacecraft for its time and made a lot of important discoveries. So I felt it really needed to be covered and of course Mars is my second most favorite planet. I was really pleased to have found the Carl Sagan clips to go with Mariner 9. Those were the original clips recorded shortly after the mission was complete and what a great primary source he was. I do want to apologize for getting a, a bit too technical with that bit coding for the images. <laughs> I found it interesting, and maybe 10% of my listeners did as well. <laughs> so so I, I apologize to the 90% that didn't. Well, just when you thought the space race was over with the moon landings, the Soviets decided it's not over. So they wanted to get to Mars first and do some amazing space feat and that's exactly what they plan to do with Mars 2 and 3 so that seems like a logical place to go next time look forward to the Soviet response Mars 2 and 3 for those Interested in farm progress, nothing was done about the leak in the 12-foot-long trench in the basement floor. The uh, gas fireplace ceramic is still broken and no work's been done on it. The window that was broken by the sheetrock delivery people remains unrepaired. Now, in good news, all the sheetrock was installed and finished. And the low spot in the kitchen ceiling was actually repaired. I didn't think they were going to be able to do it, but they did. The exterior vinyl siding was still not installed where the broken window is because they don't want to install it and take it right back out and put the broken, replace the broken window. Now, the window is not broken in the glass part. It's broken in the frame part, so that's why they have to take the whole thing out. Is if it was just the glass, it'd been a whole lot easier. But it is the frame of the window that they broke, bringing in the the sheetrock through the open window. So great, great idea, guys. The uh, granite countertops in the kitchen were installed, and Mrs. S R H just loves them. They did not install the final metal pole floor support in the basement. When we asked why, the project manager told us it was because the subcontractor was stupid. (laughs) Most of the trim and the doors have been installed. They missed the trim around one of the front windows. No explanation for that at all. They're going to have to put it on, but it's kind of odd you just skip a window. But uh, they're going to have to trim it off. And they'll have to trim off that new window when they get it put in too for the broken one. They also forgot to order one of the doors. And another door they ordered swings the wrong way. It's actually the coat closet door swings in. So you know how well that's going to work. So they're going to have to fix that, order another door for that. And apparently, doors are hard to come by. All the interior painting was done, including the broken window that has to come back out. (laughs) The finished hardwood and vinyl flooring was installed in every room except the master bath and the area where the carpet is going. Then we found a problem. We had specifically ordered a nice wide shower and the plumber decided to substitute a narrow shower. The project manager said we had to keep the narrow shower even though we paid for the wide one because there would be a three to six month delay to get a wide one. He further stated, none existed in the whole United States. I did a quick search on Lowe's and Home Depot and both had the wide shower available within seven days. So, we told the project manager he needed to look a little harder. I guess what bothers me is the plumber knew it was the wrong size and put it in anyway. And my project manager didn't want to fix it. So, he comes up with the story There's none found in the entire United States and we really need to keep this one if we want to be done on time or on time if we want to be done in a reasonable amount of time. Anyway, the new shower is being installed as I speak and it is the correct size. The problem is they had to cut a hole in the wall to get it in the bathroom. (laughs) It's a fiberglass shower, so they had to, they couldn't exactly uh, assemble it or anything. I had to cut a hole in it, in the wall. So we have a fresh hole in the wall that wasn't there, and that'll all have to be repaired. We'll have to have sheetrock put up again, and it'll have to be sanded, and it'll have to be primed and painted, and all that goes with it. And then they had to take out two doors, so they'll have to be put back too. Anyway. On the whole, we did get a good bit of work done over the past two weeks, but the shower disaster really set us back. And more good news. We have been given a vague settlement date, meaning the date that they want their final draw of money. The date given was the week of March the 4th. And I said, well, can you not give us a specific date? No, of course we can't do that. It's not company policy to give you a specific date for the settlement. We're just going to surprise you at the last minute, I guess. And that is this episode's house update. Now we'll move on. Over the last two weeks, we had several contributions and increases on Patreon, and we appreciate that. We would like to thank Stephen G., from Duluth, Minnesota, who donated at the Orion level and earned a galaxy emoji. David D. from Portland, Maine, who donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a shooting star emoji. Mark L. from Edenton, North Carolina, donated at the Apollo level and earned a space communications dish. Lynn T. from Illinois donated at the Apollo level. Johan B. from Denmark, donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Andy S. from the Czech Republic, donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Stuart L. from Texas, donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Dominic C. from London, donated at the Soyuz level and earned a satellite emoji. Mike R. from Berkeley, California, donated for his son Hank at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Judith J. donated at the Mercury level and earned an alien emoji. Ian M. from Ontario, Canada donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Robert M. from San Antonio, Texas donated at the Mercury level and earned a Nova emoji. We had an anonymous donation at the Mercury level. Peter M. from Hollywood, UK donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Thomas F. from Southern New Jersey donated at the Mercury level. Thomas W. donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. Felix K. donated at the Sputnik level and earned a satellite emoji. Richard F. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Giannis T. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. So, our total Patreon donors have reached 252 with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of 2022 our total donors for 2022 have reached 274 with a goal of 500 by the end of the year so if you are enjoying this podcast that has been running almost nine years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the patreon link now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway.
1: Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner of this episode drawing will get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or the SRH Archive magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected... Gary Avery. Gary Avery, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 274 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022.
0: My sources for this episode were NASA, NBC News, JPL, Beyond Earth, A Chronicle of Deep Space Exploration by Asif... Siddiqui, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 382 posted by February 10th, 2022. Stay healthy everyone and so long for now.